This is the eighth installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This edition of Ear to the Ground will honor the memory of a leader in the family farming and sustainable agriculture community. On Sunday, January 8, 2006, Southeast Minnesota farmer Dave Surfling was killed in an automobile accident. He was 46 years old. He left behind his wife, Diane, and two children, Hannah and Ethan. He also left behind a 350-acre farm that was a model of sustainability. And Dave Surfling left something else behind, a legacy of public service and leadership that will have lasting impacts on the land, its people, and our rural society far into the future. This Ear to the Ground is an obituary of sorts, but it is also a celebration of a man who in many ways epitomizes the best stewardship family farming can offer. During his short life, Dave Surfling had an extraordinarily huge impact on family farming and sustainable agriculture. In 1987, he and his wife Diane were one of the original farm families to be involved in the Land Stewardship Project's Stewardship Farming Program an on-farm research and information exchange initiative that was a precursor to the current Sustainable Farming Farming Association of Minnesota. The Surflings continued to be involved in on-farm research and education during the past two decades. Dave also increasingly took on a leadership role and frequently spoke and wrote about the need for farm policy that was fair and promoted systems that supported families, a healthy environment, and vibrant communities. In 1998, he was one of the original signers of a national petition to end the mandatory pork checkoff. The next year, as a key member of the Land Stewardship Project's Federal Farm Policy Committee, Dave put his analytical skills to work in developing the template for a revolutionary farm program that would reward farmers for producing positive environmental benefits on the land. After he and other farmers presented the idea to the members of Congress during a trip to Washington, D.C., the idea took shape as a conservation security program, which is part of the 2002 Farm Bill. While working on federal farm policy, Dave testified before the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee and visited Washington numerous times to make the case for policy reforms. In recent years, the Surfling Farm had been recognized for its innovative use of production systems that protected the environment and raised animals humanely while making a profit. It wasn't always easy. The part of southeast Minnesota he and Diane farmed in is highly erosive. But in 2005, the Surflings were selected for the Outstanding Conservationist Award in Area 7 of southeast Minnesota by the Minnesota Association of Soil and Water Conservation Districts. That same year, their farm was recognized by Naaman Ranch as a top producer of high-quality pork. In December 2005, Dave received a master's degree in professional agriculture from Iowa State University after taking classes for nearly two decades. At the time of his death, he was working on new ideas for the 2000 farm, 2007 Farm Bill, a new farm initiative for conservation, commodity reform, program reform, and rural development based on local food and farming systems. Dave left his mark on the land as well as innumerable people. He also left his mark on the pages of numerous publications. Throughout the years, Dave had written extensively for various publications, including the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Agri-News, and the Land Stewardship Letter. His writings and talks combined Dave's razor-sharp analytical abilities with his own family's experiences as stewards of their Fillmore County farm. 
In this podcast, we'd like to share with you some excerpts of Dave's writing. First, here are some selections from testimony he gave on July 31, 2001, before the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee hearing on conservation on working lands. In his testimony, Dave lays out the framework and philosophy behind something called the Conservation Security Act, or CSA. This initiative was later signed into law as the Conservation Security Program, also known as CSP. CSP is now recognized as one of the most innovative federal farm conservation programs ever created. I am asking you today to consider a new program to give farmers an incentive other than producing surpluses of program crops. We need it for our farms and our farmers. This last April 5th, we got an inch and a half of rain in less than one hour during our snow melt. We had a lot of frost in the ground, so it couldn't soak in. As I walked our farm after the rain, I saw severe soil erosion on every cornfield. Even corn stalks that hadn't been touched, except for a gleaning bar of beef cows, were ripped out by their roots and carried away. Draws that drained as little as three acres looked like river channels. The only fields on my farm that did not have any damage were the hay fields and pastures. The tight sod just let the water run over it. I'm a big believer in forages. They protect the land, spread out our labor, build soil, and fix nitrogen. But it is terribly hard for them to compete with program row crops economically. We need stewardship incentives that help promote conservation on our working lands. We have spent 85% of our conservation dollars on land retirement and only 15% on working land. We need to achieve a better balance in our conservation spending. Resource-based land retirement programs have their place, but are expensive on a per-acre basis and need to be tightly targeted to achieve maximum environmental gain. But there is an even bigger role for support for working, productive farmland. I would challenge you to envision a future in which two-thirds of our conservation funding is for working land. We can produce similar benefits as the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, and help provide economic return for Main Street and for farmers. I urge you to adopt this two-thirds, one-third split as your goal in the next farm bill. I'm a big believer in farm ingenuity. In recent years, we've seen tremendous growth in grass dairying, organic production, and direct marketing. You have over one million creative farmer minds out there in the country. If you tell them the environmental results that you want and give them financial incentive to achieve them, they will find a way to deliver. This brings me to asking you for the support of the Conservation Security Act. Enactment of CSA would be a great start on getting strong conservation on our working lands. It consists of three levels of conservation. The farmer has a choice of which level to participate in. The first level every farmer can achieve by using conservation tillage, nutrient management, integrated pest management, and other core conservation practices. The second level encourages farmers to incorporate a more complex crop rotation than, for instance, in my area, corn soybeans. A forage or small grain crop must be included, and if you are grazing, you must have a planned rotational system. Installation of buffer practices is also included in the second level. This second level responds to the need for some shifts in land use to reach resource conservation goals. The third level is where I hope the farmer's creativity really will come into play. This is where he can use such techniques as whole farm, total resource planning, to work with local NRCS staff to individualize the conservation benefits on his or her farm through innovative practices. For example, in my area, we have actually documented a benefit to streams by controlled grazing of stream banks. This was a farmer innovation that produced a narrower 
narrower but deeper channel and provided better fish habitat and cleaner water. A new multiple benefits of agriculture project study being released shortly by the Land Stewardship Project has hard numbers showing that innovative changes in farming systems would produce many multiple benefits in our rural areas, everything from reduced erosion and less chemical contamination to lower levels of greenhouse gases. The Conservation Security Act is a fundamental shift in farm policy. It isn't a land retirement program. It does reward farmers for solid conservation, wildlife habitat, and water protection. It does not affect the market or jeopardize trade agreements. Under CSA, farmers would produce their products for the market and receive a price for those products from the market. But the difference is this policy will provide incentives for farmers to produce other non-market benefits. The CSA addresses all kinds of agriculture in all regions of the country, and it supports diversification and public benefits while moving the government away from supporting only program crop production. This will sell to our urban and suburban constituents and to your colleagues from regions with, new, with few program crop acres, and we need their support to pass this farm bill. Please don't tell the farmers how to farm. Just tell us what results you want to see on working land, give us meaningful financial incentives, and we, American farmers, will not let you down. Thank you. In 2005, the Surfling Farm had the opportunity to sign up for the Conservation Security Program when it was offered in the Root River Watershed. I talked to Dave soon after his farm was accepted into the program, and to say the least, he was ecstatic at the thought that their conservation farming measures were finally going to be recognized and rewarded by the same government that had long put barriers in the way of stewardship-based production systems. Now we'd like to read from an essay Dave wrote for the Minneapolis Star Tribune's opinion page in 1999. It's a prime example of Dave combining his love of the land and his family with a hard-nosed demand for a chance to compete on a level playing field. I feel very blessed that I can continue to live my dream and be a full-time family farmer. I have known many people who had to give up their dream or perhaps only farm on the weekends and in the dark while holding down a job in town. The decision to quit farming is the most gut-wrenching change a farmer can go through, especially when it is a multi-generational family farm. On the average over the past five years, our farm has been able to produce a gross revenue of $150,000 with a net profit of $30,000. We're not setting the world on fire, but it's enough to live on and have a decent quality of life. With the help of low overhead and my wife Diane's part-time job, we have been able to provide for our two children, Hannah and Evan. We make our living by raising cattle, hogs, sheep, and chickens. All of the crops, corn, oats, hay, and pasture, that we raise on our 350 acres are fed to our animals. This diversity is key to our needs and goals. We feel that a diverse system that blends livestock and crops helps us stay economically and environmentally healthy. Being small and diverse gives us the kind of flexibility larger, more specialized farms can't attain. When beef prices are down, for example, perhaps one of our other enterprises will help get us through. The manure produced by our animals is used on the land that grows their feed, creating the ultimate form of recycling. But I don't raise livestock just for economic and agronomic reasons. Working with animals has always been one of my loves. I get an adrenaline rush when I play doctor and help a cow deliver a calf successfully. It is a race against life or death. It tears me up when I lose 
and gets me very excited when I win. Don't get me wrong, everything isn't rosy in agriculture. Farming for me is the most mentally and physically challenging vocation that I know. Trying to find profit in today's agriculture is extremely difficult, but it helps that we incorporate our values into our economic decisions. I get pretty excited, just ask Diane, when I find a practice that gives me profit and also is good for the environment, my family, and society. All the while, I have to keep in mind that I have no boss. It is up to me to get the most critical things done first and to keep my schedule intact and have time for my family and the causes that I believe in. It is a true juggling act. One of the acts we juggle is to purposely keep some jobs labor-intensive. We're not sadists, but this has allowed us to keep our overhead low and teach my kids not only how to work, but how to sweat. We push ourselves so hard sometimes that we fill our caps with cold water and empty them on our heads. It feels so refreshing after a hot summer day of making hay. We work hard, play hard, eat well, and sleep deep on this farm. Our kids are learning a sense of accomplishment for a job well done. Nine out of ten days, I enjoy having an outdoors job. To see the seasons change, the lambs playing tag, the cattle contentedly grazing, and the pigs rutting in the straw are all visual pleasures that I have daily on the farm. My favorite landscape is a sea of deep green corn just before it tassels, contrasted with fields of golden oats ready for harvest. It only lasts a few days, but it is very pretty. As you can probably tell, I love farming. But I have seen agriculture changing. When I was growing up, the small family farm was the foundation of agriculture. The land was cared for by owner-operators. The schools and churches in our rural communities were full. Our social fabric in our rural area was supported by middle-class family farmers. But now farming has split into three main sectors. There are still independent, multi-generational family farmers like myself, but there is also a fast-growing segment of part-timers. The third segment is mega-farms, where the owner simply manages many employees to do the work. These employees get paid whether or not the land is eroding, the water is polluted, or the neighbors don't like the smell. But they are not being paid well enough to support the small-town Main Street businesses. I am a big supporter of an agriculture that is characterized by caring, independent, small family farms. I believe in my heart that it is possible. I said earlier that it is a gut-wrenching experience for a farmer to quit. But I also believe all of society loses when a family leaves the land. The urban and suburban people I talk to say they like the kind of farm that relies on independent owner-operators like myself. They tell me that's the kind of agriculture they want producing their food and caring for the land across Minnesota. This isn't a pipe dream. There are many other families like mine out on the land producing food and feeling positive about their future. But we face many difficult barriers. For example, I've crunched the numbers and I know I can produce quality hogs just as efficiently as the big guys. But all that means nothing if I don't have a market for those animals. It's very frustrating to see packers pay more for hogs raised on mega-sized factory farms based on volume, not superior quality. We need public policies that target the type of farm that society says it wants and needs. Family-owned and operated, as well as economically and biologically diverse. We need to keep markets open for family farms. Believe it or not, there are many young farmers just chomping at the bit to get established on the land. We need low-cost, viable ways of getting them started. We need organizations like the Land Stewardship Project, which is bringing farmers like myself together with non-farmers to work toward making family-sized operations the foundation of our food system. 
The corporate takeover of American farming is not a given. If we can come together and make a commitment to have more small family farmers on the land, we can achieve such a goal. That's what democracy and freedom of choice is all about. Not being chained to the wall of inevitability. This final piece was written by Dave for his father, Everett Surfling, when he died in 1999. Dave read this eulogy at the funeral and later allowed LSP to reprint it in the Land Stewardship Letter. It illuminates the roots of Dave's stewardship ethic and love of family farming. I am here today to bury my father's body, but his spirit lives on in heaven with Jesus and here on earth with his children. He is being honored today as a war hero, but I also like to think of him as a peace hero. After being in a POW camp for several months and losing 20 pounds, Dad had an opportunity to go work on a German farm. There, he formed a lifelong friendship with the farm family whose own husband was a Russian POW at the time. They fed him and treated him well. Dad made it back to Germany five more times in his life to visit that farm family. After the war, Dad had no interest in hunting. He said he had gotten so tired of carrying a gun every day during the war. And yet whenever the Legion called him to march in a parade or serve at a funeral, Dad responded because he said it was his duty. Dad had a great life. He saw much of the world from Alaska to the Panama Canal. He came back from Australia and said if he was 20 again and just starting out, he would go there to farm with their 10-month grazing seasons and no walls needed on their barns to keep out the cold. He thought it would be farming heaven. Dad knew how to have fun. From shaking dice to dancing, from canoeing to bus trips, from playing cars to enjoying a beer, he laughed loud and often. An avid sports fan, our family vacations consisted of a trip to a Twins game, maybe even in the middle of the week. Dad's work ethic was legendary in our family. He started farming on his own from scratch and not only provided for his family, but gave his sons the opportunity to farm. I feel very fortunate that Dad and I had 19 years of farming together. It wasn't always smooth sailing, but we depended on each other. We had fun farming together. Over the years, his advice changed from get the work done on time and watch your money to make sure you make time for your church and your family. I look forward to the day when Dad and I can work together again, side by side, doing God's work in some heavenly field. I have a feeling Dave and Everett aren't exactly resting in peace these days, and I'm sure that's probably okay with them. If you'd like to learn more about Dave Surfling and read more of his writings, see www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash PR backslash 06 backslash NEWSR underscore 060109.htm. I'll read that again. It's www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash PR backslash 06 backslash NEWSR underscore 060109.htm. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also give me a call at 612-729-6294.
A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provides Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.